This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the weather's clear, can do, can do, this guy says the horse can do, if he says the horse can do. This is Bill Duncliffe. I want to welcome you back to the Can Do Horse Racing Podcast where the heroes and history of horse racing come to life. I've heard it said by others around the country that they find us natives of the Boston area to be, shall we say, somewhat provincial. I have to tell you, though, from my perspective, those dinks are just wicked effing stupid. And if they ask me one more time where I park my car, I'll tell them to take their crappy imitation of a Boston accent, for the record, everyone else has an accent except for Bostonians, and jump off the Mystic River Bridge, okay? Like anyone else anywhere, we certainly do have our pride of place. That's for sure. Slander our Red Sox, and you've made an enemy for life. Darkly hint at nefarious doings in Foxborough, and you'll be cruising for a bruising. Yeah, so we do tend to have long memories and give short shrift to any slights, perceived or otherwise. But we also will always and forever revere our heroes in our pantheons of memory. Tennessee Titan he may be now, but I can guarantee you Malcolm Butler will never have to buy his own drink anytime he shows up in our town. In our story that begins today, we have both real slights and real heroes, all wrapped up in the same family. And thanks to Abby Fuller now, like so many of us Bostonians, relocated to Florida out of the harsh winters, You'll hear about slights and heroes, heroes of both the human and equine variety. Born on March 23, 1923, Peter Fuller was, to use a popular term, born to privilege, the son of a Massachusetts governor. But whether because of his innate self-drive and or his early challenges as a youth, he never sought to rest on those laurels, willing himself to vigor and a life filled with the robust pursuit of challenges and accomplishment. Abby, as someone who grew up in New England, I was always very aware of your dad. You know, um, Peter Fuller was a well-known name. Uh, his, his dad was obviously a well-known person as, as a governor of um, Massachusetts. But when I think about your dad, the first term that kind of came to mind is um, like a classical sportsman, um, really just interested in, in, in a devotee and a participant in kind of all the sporting arts, right? I mean, I, I, that, that's, that, yes. that's the first thing I think of when I think of him. A- absolutely. I mean, we grew up, he, he loved, we would go to the, um, some of the college football games around. Um, Harvard Dartmouth was always a, a big, a big one that we would go and, and most of the family and, and he absolutely, you know, I, I'm sure he played, we would have, you know, softball games in the summer up in New Hampshire and, um, people would come by from all around and, and play and kind of drop in. And, and he absolutely loved that. Um, probably football uh, was his top sport that he, you know, and then, of course, the wrestling and um, the boxing that he participated 
fully in, you know. Yeah, we'll talk about the boxing too. <laughs> yeah, I mean yeah. that was pretty pretty amazing. And he he had a for years growing up. Um, he always had a gym like down in the basement, and you know we'd go play in there with those boxing, uh, the the rapid bags and all that, you know, yeah. stuff. So he he was. He was always into his fitness. He, you know, took some healthy supplements way back in the day. He'd make a little cocktail with sunflower seeds and and molasses and Energol and I don't know stuff they probably don't even make anymore. But, <laughs> um, you know, he he was definitely into. He would tell us wherever you you go, your body goes with you. So that was kind of his little saying of of taking care of yourself. You know, uh, his his devotion to physical activity and taking care of himself, you know, uh, in, in reading about him, uh, my background on him, in a way, and I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but he's, he's almost like a, a, a Teddy Roosevelt in that the troubles that he suffered in his early years really kind of drove what he became and what was important to him, the physical, the robust physical activity later in his life. Would you agree with that? I would say that's right on the money. Yeah, he he would tell stories, um, not in too much detail, but of being this little tiny boy who really couldn't digest food. It's how he got into the goat's milk and then ended up having goats um, as we grew up on, on running mead. Um, and he um, had the little, he said, the little bloated belly. And basically he had... Um, Oh, now I'm going to forget what it's called, um, where you're, you can't digest like the wheat and stuff. Oh, the, um, gluten. Yeah. Um, we're both going to. I want to say scoliosis and that is no, certainly <laughs> right, not right. it. He didn't suffer from that. No, but, um, I, no. we'll come up with the term. We'll come up with the term. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We will. Yep. <laughs> we'll fill that in. Um, yep. Uh, like uh, the IBS, but much worse. And and so yeah, he he was um, you know at a time they, I think they didn't, weren't even sure you know that he would make it. I mean he had to really he was scrawny little guy. And then his dad um, they had he his dad definitely had a gentleman's farm in New Hampshire, and he would you know work putting post holes in. And I mean. And I, and I don't think it was something he had to do. He wanted to do it. He was maybe directed towards some things, but then he absolutely took it on himself to build himself up. Yeah, he really, he really drove himself, didn't he, to, to overcome that. It seemed like so much of what he did later in his life, like we said, was all kind of originated from those experiences he had as a young, as a young boy. And, of course, the word that Abby and I were both searching for was celiac, as in celiac disease. While he entertained thoughts at times of following the family tree into politics, he made his mark first as an automobile dealer. Horses were always a part of his family rituals. Given his love of challenges of all kinds and his love of gambling, I suppose it was inevitable that racing and then breeding were pursuits that he threw himself into with his characteristic energy. It's been a long time since, and likely to be a long time until again, Someone says that a classic thoroughbred racing and breeding operation was run out of a farm in New Hampshire. So was racing part of the family background, Abby, or was that just something that he kind of gravitated to because of his general interest in sports? 
I would say that, yes. He, gosh, he had horses way back, you know, in, in the 50s. Um, they rode as kids, um, he and his brother and sisters on the farm, but always in that, you know, probably gentlemanly pursuit. Of, mm. um, but he, he also liked gambling. He, that was his. He did not drink and he didn't smoke, <laughs> but he liked gambling, so that probably drew him as well. Okay. Um, but and then in later years he didn't bet anymore. Um, but he he loved that um, the, the breeding end of it as well. He, he really became a, a good student of that, and then but also the sporting, definitely the sporting aspect of it. Of you know, too, he was a big admirer of jockeys, and so the the athleticism of of the jockeys and of the horses. Yeah, he really, uh, you know, one of the things that struck me is he really must have thrown himself into studying the breeding. You know, he um, obviously, for, you know, in terms of dancer's image, bred Noor's image to native dancer. Um, but, you know, yep. people would not think of the New Hampshire seacoast as a as a breeding center for, for great thoroughbreds, right? So he really right. um, made his mark in a, a couple of ways, not, you know, uh, kind of carving out his own path, I guess I would say. Absolutely, which was is kind of him in a nutshell, is carving his own path, I would say. Um, and he did, you know, a lot of the early horses were Maryland breds. He had a lot of ties to Maryland. Um, of course, had some Kentucky breds. Um, didn't probably didn't have maybe one or two New Hampshire breds along the way. Certainly supported the mass bred program when they had. Um, you know, good racing yep. in New England. Yep. Um, and then, and then internationally. Um, okay. Yeah. One of the, uh, I mean, he, he raced even a steeplechase horse in France that I ended up with. Oh, no way. Show horse. Okay. Um, he was going to bow attendant. He was a descendant of dancer's image and, um, his name was Cumble the world. And he, so we brought him back from France, and I rehabbed him, and we had him as a show horse when I was like 17, 18. Yeah. So he he was all over. I mean, Ireland loved – dancer stood in Maryland, France, Ireland, and then Japan at the end. As in the old saying, breed the best of the best and then hope for the best, Peter Fuller sought out the best horsemen of his day, at times offering them his quote-unquote advice, which was promptly put in its place. Yeah, and, and – and- Dancers, of course, that that really is when I first uh, became interested in horse racing. I would say, um, you know, you know, growing up in Boston, there's the Peter Fuller connection. Um, but you know, I went back and I looked at his history, and it's just it's interesting to see how the sport has changed so much. You know, prior to the right. Kentucky Derby, he started in Canada, Maryland, Illinois, New York. I mean, you just, you know, three starts sure. now is kind of the normal thing, right? As opposed to traveling multi-states and, and, and taking on all comers. It's, it's such a different approach now. Absolutely. And, and Lou Cavalleris, who, who trained dancer was such a excellent horseman. Um, you know, and, and, and he, I guess he did things the way that they did it back then. And, um, you know, dad, dad had some, he always had some really good horsemen. He told me he got um, trained early on. Oh, gosh. In a, it, one of the trainers, very early, top guy that he had, and Dad kind of wanted to come in and tell him 
you know, we should do this, we should do that. And he said, you know, you, basically you need to stay in your lane and, <laughs> and I'm going to train the horses. Mm-hmm. And, and, he, and he got it. And then, and then I think he was a really excellent owner for, for all his, you know. I mean, Odie Cleland, you go back in the Maryland days, he was, he was a great horseman um, where Chris and Greg McCarron got their starts. And, and, you know, Ned Aller that trained mom, I mean, just fantastic horsemen. And, and then he was a really loyal owner once he was with them. So um, Bobby Lake in New York, another great guy. So, uh, yeah, he, he was definitely um, appreciated uh, kind of the, the teamwork. And he, was, he would say, you know, I'd like to run this horse here or there, but he also was very respectful of, you know, the the horsemen on the ground there day after day. To this day, there's never been a satisfactory ending or explanation of the 1968 Kentucky Derby and the disqualification days after the race of Peter Fuller's dancer's image. Don't take that from Provincial Me. Take that from Billy Reed, longtime Kentucky-based sports writer who, for his efforts digging into the story on the backstretch in the aftermath of the disqualification, earned himself a punch-out from Dr. Alex Harthill, one of the more suspected characters in this derby mystery. Was it Peter Fuller, a longtime civil rights advocate, and his support of Coretta Scott King that prompted a nefarious payback scheme? Or simple refusal to allow a Maryland bred to trump the Kentucky Blue Bloods and wear the roses in history's pages? Or was it simply incompetence? Unfortunately, we likely will never know. But Billy Reed, for one, has always considered Dancer's Image to be the rightful winner of the 1968 Kentucky Derby. So let's let's talk about, of course, Dancers in the Kentucky Derby. And it just, uh, I, you know, I remember it when it happened, and I, you know, went back and I did my research to kind of refresh myself on some of the facts. Um, you know, he was he was a obviously well regarded horse prior to the race. He had he had racked up quite a, a, a spectacular record and. He was, we all know, he was given the phenobutazone a week before the race. The expectation was yep. that should have been fully out of his system by all medical veterinary accounts that would have been well out of his system. And yet, after the race, he tests positive for the substance, which it was kind of interesting. No one ever actually saw the test results, and there was no such thing as a split sample back then either to Correct. kind of validate the testing. Do you, and this may be hard, do you think there was a conspiracy there? Was there jealousy? Was it incompetence? Uh, you know, I, I, you uh, know, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. That's, that story is in, in a um, compilation of racing mysteries, probably for a reason. Um, so, and, and I was, you said that's when you first got really interested. That's the first race I remember seeing. Um, I was just turned nine years old, and mm-hmm. I was the youngest of the kids that got to go because I was already um, a horse lover, didn't know much about racing. And um, and so I, I got to go. Bobby Ussery became my first racing hero, my okay. first yeah. hero, really. Yeah. And, and what I remember then, you know, and, of course, my, my mom and dad finding out, you know, he, he – showed her the paper and and um said they're talking about us <laughs> uh and you know it was an incompetence i i 
certain it was an incompetence on on Lou Cavalier's part. No, um, certainly not. Yeah, the, yeah. The part about um, you know Dr. Harthill, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I know that he was not a um, fan of of uh, diversity, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, he was a old Kentucky hard boot, and doesn't mean that that's necessarily a bad thing, but that's who he was. And he, at that time, it's kind of amazing, but he took care of all the Derby horses. Dad had wanted to bring um, security because of um, they some threatening letters and stuff after the Wood Memorial um, that Dancer won and the uh, guy on TV had, had mentioned his donation to um Mrs. King, Coretta Scott King, after um, Martin Luther King's assassination. And he had quietly, he had he and my mom had met them both, and my dad wanted to help her, you know, continue the mm. mission, I guess. And, yep. and so he gave the purse from the wood, no, from a race in Maryland uh, before the wood. Okay. So now they're, 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 uh, taking time before the race so to, uh, before the wood i guess there was some delay and the announcer on the talked about it he somehow knew about it it had been done very quietly um you know respectfully obviously and and then but this guy knew about it and said it on on tv before the wood and some people did not like that so yes Yes, you know, in a in a word, I think there is some connection to that. It seems too, um, it's it seems naive to to imagine that there wasn't. And then, um, I'm guessing you've heard the story of um, uh, Lexington Billy uh, Billy Reed. Billy Reed, yes, yeah, catching, yeah, catching, uh, yeah, yeah, Doc in the messing around with feed bags or something and then he tackled them and that's like a kind of crazy story so so i don't know and i don't have any inside scoop that dad might have passed on because i think he you know he always wondered and and i know that um you know it always bothered him and hurt him to be you know yeah well that that goal you shoot for you know your entire racing career and you you hit it and and all of a sudden the rug gets pulled out from under right. you I, i'm sure it uh it I, I know he fought for years to get the ruling overturned i imagine there's a part of him that really never kind of got over it i guess right i think i think you're right yeah yeah people have asked me oh well mom's command and i'm sure that helped but no it didn't it didn't, um you know take it away for him it did for me. <laughs> yeah. Selfishly. <laughs> and of course, being a kid, I was not as fully aware. But we, I mean, that obviously, that was a, you know, a huge thing. But honestly, I always lived with the knowledge I was there to see, you know, my dad's horse win the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you know, we talked about Billy Reed. He says to this day, and this is a gentleman who, you know, obviously part of racing for all of his adult life he said the number one injustice that he's seen in racing is that dancer's image has not been declared the winner right. of that kentucky derby um you know right that says and a I lot find that, 
a number of people um, say that to me over the years, you know, um, people from Kentucky, from all over, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, the, the definitely. I- go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, it's definitely a kind of an amazing, intriguing story. Um, you know, one of a kind. Well, and of course, the ultimate irony is that in 1974, they go ahead and legalize Butte. So, you know, had the race happened, what, five years later, it, it would have been a non-issue anyway. And I'm sure that must have, that one must right. have stung, too. Peter Fuller fought the good fight for Dancer's Image, spending an estimated $250,000 in legal fees to overturn the decision. As we said before, fighting was in his blood, including a fight against, ironically enough, a Louisville and Universal legend. But he, uh, you know, it, it was interesting, you know, <laughs> you know, he, he fought this ruling. He clearly, you know, fought his way to uh, achieve what he did um, in every part of his life. Um, and, you know, what I remember, one of the other things I remember is when Muhammad Ali came to Boston to fight a series of kind of one round exhibitions. There was your dad lacing him up with Muhammad Ali, who was another one of my boyhood <laughs> heroes. Honestly, did he ever did he ever talk about what it was like? Uh, did, did he get any interaction with Muhammad Ali? Um you know, before he, or after he the fight? did. Now, I, I didn't get to go to that, but some of my, my brother and some of my sisters were there. And he, he did. And amazingly, especially at first, and then I think over time, he realized. But honestly, the competitor in him was kind of pissed that <laughs> Ali wouldn't really go with him. And oh, was, wow. Yeah. I don't know, 50-ish, and Ali was... 30 ish mm-hmm. um and in his in his you know and and dad and and he i believe this i'm sure i know that he told us like ali would kind of push him back and say and he said take it easy old man and that <laughs> made my dad go a little crazy and none of us are like amazed or surprised by that that knew him well because like oh yeah of course dad would do that like, <laughs> That's great. You know, and Ali's like, you know, we're here to do a, <laughs> yeah, the guy's here to do a, a nice thing and a nice <laughs> exhibition. He sure as heck doesn't want to knock out the guy. You know, it just is funny, just funny, and so typical. That that kind of sums it up. Oh, that's great. That's a great story. I can, I can imagine yeah. Muhammad Ali's reaction. He must have been like, "What is it going on?" Yeah, here? he's we're, like, we're "What's going on?" <laughs> Wander almost anywhere in America, and you can come across historic properties that have changed hands, changed roles, changed appearances over time. Change is really the only constant. And so Runnymede Farm, once proud homestead of the Familia Fuller, now carries an entirely different profile. But the love of and appreciation for this sport of ours was engendered there in Abbey, and as you will hear, carries on to this day. So you mentioned um, Runnymede Farm, Abbey, and, and uh, in doing my research preparing for this, I just saw that actually the property was up for sale this year, right? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And, and I know, you know, we'll talk about Mom's Command in a little bit. I believe that she is buried there. That that property passing on must have some bittersweet feelings for you and your family, I would imagine. Absolutely. I mean, I wish, I, I believe it's um, safe to stay a farm as, you know, I mean, laws are laws and people are people but that that's definitely in there to hopefully keep it um i mean it obviously shrunk over time and Mm -hmm. and 
um, of course, some beautiful houses built there. Um, and I'm certainly hoping the barn and those front paddocks there will stay. It's hard to, you know, un- unless you've got a, a lot of money. And, right. and obviously the taxes are high and to run a business. And the people that were there um, actually wanted, they had Frisians and they wanted to build an indoor arena for the winter. And the town didn't allow it. So that, you know, that makes it hard. I, I, I do you know, I understand, but I, I wish, I hope, I, I still have hope. Maybe, <laughs> maybe someone will call me in and we'll make a summer uh, uh, retreat for kids and horses. <laughs> oh, that would be a nice. <laughs> See, you got to put it nice out in the universe. Yeah. 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 I've done some really um, interesting work. Um, I'm, I'm what's called PATH certified, which okay. is Professional Association of Therapeutic Horsemanship. That encompasses the therapeutic riding that's mm. not what i do i've been uh i did volunteer in that aspect to get my certification but um it's a really i've worked in the mental health and so horses are our partners with um you know possibly a mental health professional obviously if you're doing uh, psych, uh psychological therapy you have a mental health professional and then myself is kind of that horse um person in and then the horse and then clients and it's amazing so i i love that and i i do dream of getting that further out it's out in the world um, yeah but and i've done some work but i'd love to I, i've looked around actually in the seacoast and and that area um and there isn't something like that either so uh it's it's a newer yeah it's a newer um field but it's mm-hmm. really cool and you know, some some veterans and youth at risk have, have you know, uh, greatly um, benefited from, from that kind of work. So Yeah, it's kind of analogous to, to um, we're going to be doing a show later in 2021 on Quick Call and the whole um, Second Chance program with the prisoners um, that the Thoroughbred yeah. Retirement Foundation has started. Um, and now I think they have, I think they have these programs at like eight different prison facilities around the country. It's So it's similar... To that, the the therapeutic yes. aspect of, of working with a horse. Yeah, there's one here um, in uh, near Ocala, in Ocala, with um, the women's prison. That yeah, I, you that's know, right. When open up a little bit. I'd really like to, you know, see if I can be helpful over there too, because um, it's right here. And yeah, they do. I think they do some great work. And and the horses. You know, not every horse is going to be a therapy horse, but any horse could be. And thoroughbreds are definitely um, very capable uh, helpers. There's the one aspect of the Fuller Saga. The father who challenged himself every day in every way, loved fiercely, fought the good fight, and persevered throughout. Traits that I dare say he passed along to not only his daughter, but also seemed to run through his stable as well. Join us again next week as we continue our conversation with Abby Fuller for a look back at a remarkable horse, a champion who bestowed at least partial redemption, and more importantly, the bond this champion strengthened between father and daughter. Can, can, I pick him Valentine, cause on the morning line, the guy has got him bigger than five to nine. But make it epitaph, he wins it by a half. According to this here in the telegraph. Before a beer I'll fight, I hear his foot's all right. Of course it all depends if he's red.